so some of you know this. Uh, when I was in seminary, I worked for the local YMCA, which was a great experience. I love the Y. Our family loves the Y. And so one of my jobs when I worked for the YMCA, this was in downtown Tacoma, uh, was to give people tours. So they'd walk in off the street. They would come to our, our gym, as was often referred to, but I'll get to that in a minute. And they'd say, hey, I'd like a tour. I'd love to see the place. So I'd walk them around. And so what I would listen for on the tour was, like, what are your goals? Like, what are you looking for? A lot of times people would come in and they would say, you know, I just found out I have diabetes and I really need a good health program to kind of help me manage this disease. Sometimes people would come in and they had a very, like, specific weight loss goal. As you can imagine, the new year was a very busy time for us, people making New Year's resolutions. Uh, The gym that I went to in college, the two weeks before spring break were always super busy. I don't know why. It was so strange. People would always come in and they'd have this set of expectations. I want to hit this target. I want to get at this goal. And what I would often find as I would walk and talk with them and give them the tours was there was a lot more than just that specific goal, right? There's a lot more to somebody's life than just, hey, I'm, I'm figuring out how to manage my diabetes. I'm figuring out how to manage my weight. What I would tell people, and I really and truly believe this, the number one driver of success in that environment, in kind of the fitness world, it wasn't how much time you spent on the treadmill, It wasn't even your diet, although that was really important. The people that we found at the Y who most succeeded in their health goals were people that hung out and were part of a community. They were the people who would stop and get a cup of coffee on the way out, and they'd talk with their buddy who worked out right next to them, or they would see a friend from their spin class, or they they would take their time. They would engage with the community. Was that on their radar when they came in with their very specific health goal? Not at all. But what I would tell people as I would do the tour was, we're not a gym, we're a community organization. We want you to connect here, we want you to belong here. You may come in with this target, but there will be more that you see you want to be a part of. Today's story is a little bit like that. A man that is an invalid, the text used to the word invalid is intentional. It literally means someone whose body is not good for much at all. He has been paralyzed, he has been stuck in the same place for 38 years, He sees Jesus coming by, and he has a target. He has a goal of making his body better. And wouldn't we all, if you'd been stuck somewhere, let alone for 38 years, 38 minutes? Like, this guy is in a tough spot. And yet he comes to Jesus with a goal, and Jesus says, I hear you, I hear the goal. But not unlike the people that I would encounter at the YMCA, there was a bigger picture. If you back the camera lens up, there was a lot more that this guy needed than just the healing of his body. Uh, as has often been uh, my tradition in preaching texts like this, I don't like referring to somebody as just the guy, so I'm going to give him a name. Can we give him a name today? Okay, we're going to call him Chuck. All right, so this is Chuck, the guy who was stuck outside of the temple. I know, just go with it, whatever. Let's humanize him a little bit. We're continuing in this sermon series called Drawn to the Margins. So all of our Bethany churches preach through the same sermon series. We preach on the same text every week, but in very unique ways. And so today, Jesus is going to the margins, as it were, meeting Chuck. He's in a very interesting place, which we'll talk about in just a minute, right outside the temple. Chuck is on the margins, but our sermon series isn't just about the people that would be on the margins. It's about the places in our hearts where we would say, Jesus, I don't need you here. I got this. Where we might say, like, you know, I got other stuff I'd rather you work on. I'll just keep this to myself. We have our own margins, And we need God to come and meet us in those places, lest we continue to miss the bigger life that he has for us. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to open that up. 
Uh, I changed the outline, keeping with my tradition of throwing y'all a curveball every single week. The outline goes like this. We're going to talk about healing, a challenge that's faced, and then we're going to talk about transformation. Healing, challenge, and transformation. And a thesis to just kind of try to wrap all of this together for us goes like this. Jesus doesn't just want to heal us physically. He wants to change everything. He wants to change everything for you and for me. And we're going to see how that plays out in Chuck's life. So join me. Open up your Bibles. Open up your Bible app if you'd like. We're going to look at John 5. This first section is verses 1 through 9. The text sets the scenes for us, okay? So we got to talk about where we are, what's going on. Jesus is in Jerusalem, the holy city, kind of his big ticket moment with uh, his people, the Jews. There's a huge party going on, the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is one of the many feasts in the Jewish calendar year. Big deal. Picture confetti laying all over the ground, and there's a food table over here and all kinds of stuff. It's a big deal. And so there's tons of people in town from all over the place. They're going to the temple to worship. And as they go into worship, they pass by these pools. And this is just a picture of one pool. This isn't necessarily the same pool in the text, but it's one pool. Now, what are these pools about? These would have been out in front of before you got into the temple. And they were used for various purposes. Sometimes they were used so people could wash their feet before they came into the temple to kind of get cleaned up. Uh, Of course, as being things built by people, they acquired legend. And so there was a legend that certain pools, particularly around the temple in Jerusalem, they had healing powers. They were able to heal people. If you've ever visited Colorado or any place that has lots of hot springs, do we not continue to have similar myths, similar things? Like, go take a dip in this mineral hot spring. Look what will happen. Your hair will grow back. Your wrinkles will go away. Same kind of deal. This is not a new thing. Now, look at your text with me at verse 3. What comes after verse 3? What's the next number that should be there? Should be a 4, but if you look at your Bible, there's probably not a 4, right? There's, it just goes to verse 5. What happened to verse 4? Without going into too much detail, we're going to talk about verse 4. Oftentimes, in the scriptures, there are little verses or little chunks, we'll talk about another chunk later on, that, if you want to oversimplify it, didn't make the cut. Now, who got to make the cuts? Well, there was a team of people centuries ago that were responsible for saying, when we put together the scriptures, we're going to look at all these different ancient manuscripts. There are more manuscripts that back up the the, uh, variability of the Bible than there are any other ancient document. It's amazing how many different documents there are, and they all verify the stories of Jesus. But there's different ones, and different ones had different things missing from them. In this case, verse 4 didn't appear in certain manuscripts. So if you look at the footnote in your Bible at the end of verse 3, it should drop you down to the bottom of the page where it'll tell you, here's verse 4. For whatever reason, verse 4 didn't make the cut. Sorry, verse 4. But we're going to talk about verse 4 today. It goes like this in my Bible. This is talking about Chuck. What was Chuck doing? He was waiting for the stirring of the water. Remember, he's by a pool. For what? For an angel of the Lord. An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well from whatever disease that person had. This is what Chuck is waiting on. 38 years. He's not the only person there. There are lots of other people with similar brokenness in their bodies who are just waiting for this moment. Now, let's not get hung up on the particulars. This is what Chuck is waiting for. Focus on the big picture. He's still hoping to be healed. He's literally waiting on a supernatural, miraculous event 
to happen, not just arbitrarily, happen in such a way, in such a time where he can what? Get into the water. He's waiting for the bullseye. He's waiting for his opportunity to hit the target. And so often when we encounter people in the scriptures, it's kind of unclear. What are they after? What are they trying to get at? Jesus is so expert at being able to lift those motives out. We know what Chuck's motives are. It's right there in verse 7. Read this with me. Listen to this as I read it. Chuck, the sick man, answered Jesus. Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm making my way, someone else steps ahead of me. Okay, that was a yes or no question. (laughs) Do you want to be made well? And Chuck says, hey, I can't get there. I can't get to where I need to be. I can't hit my bullseye. And I want to pause for just a moment and ask the question, Why doesn't he just say yes? Do you want to be made well? Why doesn't he just say yes? I think verse 7 explains exactly why. He's not looking to Jesus to help him. That's not his paradigm. He has a set of tasks, a set of rules. This is the people at the YMCA I was telling you about. I want to change my diet. I want to be on the treadmill for 20 minutes a day. I want to make sure my blood sugar drops down. I want this, I want this, I want this. And that's great to have our paradigms. But if Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be healed? And we say, no, nah, I'm, I'm going to wait on the angel. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. How's that working out for you? How's 38 years of waiting on your paradigm to come together? How's that working out for you? In Chuck's case, not so good. This picture in his head is keeping him from the open hand right in front of him. Friends, are we asking Jesus for help? This is a simple question, but it should rock your world like it rocked my world this week. I came back from an amazing weekend with a group of men from our church, the Malibu Men's Retreat. It was wonderful. Malibu, Canada, not Malibu, California, very different animal. And I'll just tell you, men experienced powerful things there. I did too. Men experienced healing and restoration and renewal. And of course, when you come back, you're staring at your screen on Monday or Tuesday, and you're going, where was I this weekend? What? How long ago was that? And honestly, for me, throughout the week, it just felt like things were piling up. This happens to me sometimes. I tend to be kind of an anxious person when this happens, ask my wife. And so even though I am very grateful for my job, I'm very grateful for this call to Bethany, this week, leading through the week, kind of felt like, how am I ever going to dig out from under all of this? Emails and meetings and stuff that just is great but tiring. And so finally it came to Thursday morning. took me three days to come to this point where I said, Jesus, I'm done trying to do this by myself. I've been trying to carry this weight. I've been trying to hit my little target over here. I can fix it. I can do it. I got it. And Thursday morning I go, how's that working out for you? Not that good. I was tired, I was frustrated, and so in that moment, I just said, Jesus, I'm going to look to you for help. I'm going to look to you. And sure, many of us have been in churches our whole lives, many of us have heard sermons like this before, I may not be telling you anything new, all I'm telling you is, this is what I learned this week. I need to stop looking to me for help. I need to stop it. And I'm not the only person in the room that needs to do this. So your application, your homework, all of us this week, is find an opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm tired of looking at me. That's not turning out so good for me. I am looking for you for help. Chuck's hope was not in Jesus. Chuck's hope was, if I get in the pool at the right time with the right angel and the right people get out of my way, I'll get what I want. Stop. 
Stop waiting for the right time. Stop waiting for your current circumstance to change. How many times have we told ourselves, the next job is going to be so good, and I'm just tolerating this job. How many times have we told ourselves, my next relationship, the next time I start dating somebody, I'm going to be so much better than the last time I dated somebody? How many times do we look around at our home, or our apartment, or our condo, and we go, I'll tolerate this, but I'm really waiting for the next thing. May I just say that you were meant for more than tolerating your current place? You are meant for more than tolerating your job, or your spouse, or your family. You are meant for more, so much more. Don't waste another minute tolerating. Ask Jesus, Lord, how, do you, how can I accept your help this week? Because Chuck almost missed it. And thank goodness Jesus didn't let him miss it. So that's part one. Now let's talk about part two. Chuck is healed. Hooray, it's the end of the story, right? Well, no, there's an epilogue. There's a PS, and we're going to talk about that. This is where a challenge comes up in Chuck's journey. So turn with me to verse 9. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. So 9 says this, At once Chuck was made well. He took up his mat. He began to walk. But that day was a Sabbath day. So the Jews said to the man who'd been cured, they said to Chuck, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, Well, who is this man who said to you, Take up your mat and walk? And the man who'd been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd. Other accounts say Jesus was so surrounded by people that he had to get away. He had to leave the scene for just a minute. That'll be important when we come back to it in a little while. So what just happened? Chuck is healed. Fantastic. The guy that's been laying there for 38 years that all these people have walked by over and over and over again. He's up. He's moving around. And how do his people, the Jews, respond? They jump into the Crown Vic, they put the red siren on top, and they drive to the scene of the crime, and they're going to arrest this guy. Why? Why are they not celebrating? Why are they not rejoicing that this guy that they've seen for years all of a sudden is healed? What's the thing that they say to them in verse 10? It is not lawful to carry your mat. Sorry, guys, the mat police is here. You're busted. Put the cuffs on him. And the, Now, are they wrong to say this to Chuck? Not in their tradition. In their tradition, think of this as like kind of two concentric circles with me. The first circle, kind of the bullseye, is the law. And that would be things like the Ten Commandments and the laws of Moses. These are the things that Jesus never tore down, never said, forget about the law. Remember Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law. He's talking about that circle of the good laws, particularly the Ten Commandments that really carried forward what God wanted for people. During this time in history, there was, and this is the term they actually used for it, a hedge around the law. These were laws that were designed to help people keep the law. So laws to make sure you kept the law. How do you think those laws turned out? Not so good, because they were designed by people, such as the center point of the law here in this case is the Sabbath. Sabbath is great. Sabbath is amazing. I would be toast without Sabbath. Sabbath is one of the things that we so frequently break in our culture. So many of us can say, well, I didn't murder anybody, but we didn't keep the Sabbath. Both things are bad for us. In this case, the good is keep the Sabbath. 
The bad around it, the hedge around it is very specific rules and regulations like, oh, you're not allowed to pick up your mat on the Sabbath. There were rules designed to help keep people doing certain kinds of work on the Sabbath day because obviously they didn't get the Sabbath thing, so let's create rules so they can check those boxes. There's actually another Sabbath law. This blows my mind. There was a law that said for a Jewish man on the Sabbath day, he needed to put a stake in the ground and out in front of the door to his house, tie a rope around the stake, put the other end of the rope around his ankle, and only walk as far as that rope allowed him to go. Guess what the distance of that rope was? What the hedge of the law said was okay to walk on the Sabbath day. So you're tying yourself up to make sure that you don't walk too far on the Sabbath day. That's normal. (laughs) We all do that, right? That's fine. There's nothing weird about watching your neighbor go like, oh, if I could just get the mail, like, huh. They're not wrong, but they are wrong. Because that's not what the Sabbath is for. That's not what the law is for. Here's the point. They made, the Jews, cultural creations that led them to miss God's miracle. They're so upset about the mat. They're so upset about him breaking the law that they miss the fact that their brother, their peer, their friend is healed. 38 years of walking by this guy. He's finally up. He's finally well. And they're going, dude, you're mad. Come on. We're not that different. We're not that different. I think one of the greatest challenges facing people, especially on the east side, are these cultural things that we build for ourselves. We have important jobs. We do important work. But we get a pretty inflated ego around that at times. We tell ourselves, my work is so important, I have to stay connected 24-7, I cannot leave my phone, I cannot do this, I cannot do that. And what we're doing is creating a hedge. We're creating some laws for ourselves that will only seek to divide us from the king. There's so many other things like that. A very practical application for all of us this week, put your glowing rectangle away. Now I'm oversimplifying a little bit here, but I'm not sorry. Put your phone away. Because it's a cultural creation that we tell ourselves we need, like a law for a law, and we don't need it. One of the best things about going on this Malibu men's retreat is there's no cell service up there. And when you come back to civilization, you turn your phone on, for me, begrudgingly, and nothing happened. Nobody missed you. The world went on without you. It was fine, gloriously fine, because God is good. You can live without it. Put your phone away. I had my daughter come up to me, my middle daughter, not too long ago, and I was texting somebody, and she was trying to get my attention, and just in her sweet little voice said, Daddy, put your phone away. You betcha I put that phone away. And I do not want to miss whatever's going on in her life so I can send some stupid text. It doesn't matter. If this week we are the type of people, when we're waiting in line, when we're somewhere where everyone else is on their phones, and we're those few happy few that look around and go, what's really going on here? I don't need to look at my phone. I want to see the people God's put in front of me. I want to see my neighbors. I want to see what's happening around me right now. We may actually see the miracles that God has put right in front of us, like these people missed with Chuck. This is the way that we swim upstream against the current. It's very practical. We can all do it. Let's try to do it together this week. Amen? Say it like you mean it. Amen. Last one, transformation. This is verses 14 and 15. So Chuck has been healed. Cultural barriers are coming down. Jesus' healing is not finished yet, though, because he's healed Chuck's body, but he's got a little bit more to do. This is verses 14 and 15. 
Later, Jesus found him in the temple, found Chuck, and said to him, See, you've been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. And then Chuck went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I want to focus on these five words that Jesus says here. Do not sin anymore. Another translation, you may have heard this growing up, says go and sin no more. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, it should be, because there are, many, there are several other places in the scriptures where Jesus says this, including John chapter 8, which, sidebar, is another one of those passages that kind of sort of made the cut with the editors. So next time you read John 8, look for some brackets around it. Very interesting Bible nerd trivia. John 8's the story of the woman caught in adultery, right? So this is, a whole, this is just a painful story to imagine. Imagine one of your neighbors, imagine one of your coworkers, dragged out in front of an angry mob, caught in the act of adultery, like right then, just right then. And she's on trial, show trial before her peers. These angry men want to throw stones at her. Jesus stands in front of them, and he draws in the dirt, and he says, whichever one of you didn't have a sin, throw a stone. And they all drop their rocks, and they all walk away. And what does he say to her right after that? He says, go and sin no more. This is not the first time, not the only time, and certainly not the last time that he says something like this to someone he loves. Why? Go and sin no more? Like, that's impossible. Go and sin no more? Like, don't breathe? (laughs) Don't blink? Like, all of us are going to... Okay, how many times? The last time you did something you don't like, let's say you've got a, a... minor addiction to something, or you've got to hang up, you've got a habit you can't change, you're getting into a fight with your spouse all the time, your kids are driving you nuts, how many times have you done something and you've just done this, I am never doing that again? How long does that last? 20 seconds? 30? Maybe, if you're like me, I'll never do that again. We make those promises and we cannot keep them, can we? All Jesus is saying here is, there's more. He's not asking for them to be perfect. I don't think the Lord of the universe is setting a bar that people can't reach. I think what he's saying is, I want you to do this impossible thing because it'll make you come to me. Because you'll become the kind of person that I hope for you to be. Case in point, Jesus' disciple Peter. The disciples are on a boat during the storm. They're seasoned fishermen. They are freaking out because this is the worst storm they've ever seen. Jesus comes walking on the water. I believe that's impossible. And then says to Peter, come join me on the water. Also impossible. And Peter gets on the water. Impossible. Jesus asks the impossible of people he loves all the time. Jesus comes later to Peter after he has been resurrected, after Peter has nearly torpedoed the entire mission of the church, almost brought the whole house down. And Jesus says to him, I know you've messed up, but feed my sheep. Get back in the game. I need you. He's asking the impossible. Of Peter, Who would ask someone who had failed that catastrophically to go on and take the leadership that he did? Jesus does, and Jesus will. Why would he ask ordinary people like you and me to do impossible things? Because he longs for something that we want, and we don't know how to get there. And the thing that we want that he longs for us is for a bigger life, for a much bigger life for adventure, for joy, for reconciliation, for the world to be made right. Chuck's life should have been totally different after he was healed, but it was not different. 
He'd been laying on the ground for 30 years. Don't you think, 38 years, don't you think after he's healed, he wants a bigger life. He wants to go see where his family is or see if any of his friends are left. Maybe he had a house, go back to his old house. He probably wants to take a shower. 38 years is a long time. But what does he do? What does the text tell us he does? He stays at the temple. Why would he do that? Why, why? Get, get me out of here. If I'm Chuck, I'm like, I need a change of clothes. I, forget you people. I'm going to get a cup of coffee. Like, leave, like, I'm out. But what's the lesson here? Chuck's body might be healed, but his life is not different. Not yet. He's not transformed. What's he doing? What do any of us do when we're in crisis? What do any of us do when we don't know which way to go? We go to our default. We go to what we know best. What does Chuck know best? Hanging out at the temple, trying to figure out how to make it by, how to make it work. He's been healed, but he's not different. Have you had this experience? Where you've had something powerful and profound happen to you? You have a moment, maybe it's with God, you have a moment with somebody you love, you're touched so deeply, it just, it's a turning point event in your life, and then the next day is Tuesday. And you're back at work, or you're back with your kids, and you're going, what do I do? I don't know. What what was that thing that I did? I don't even remember, right? Jesus is saying to Chuck, he says this to the woman caught in adultery, he says it to you, he says it to me, step into the impossible. Act like what I have done for you has changed you. Act like what I have done for you on the cross with my resurrection has changed you. Don't prove yourself to me. Don't hear me say that. That's not the gospel. Act like I have changed you and you will be changed. The rubber meets the road for Chuck and he defaults back. But thanks be to God that Jesus comes back for him. I, don't, I, I didn't look at this very carefully. We kicked this around a teaching team, so this is speculative. I don't think there's any other time in the Gospels when Jesus comes back to somebody. Usually he encounters someone like Zacchaeus or you know, any of these other people he's healed, and it's kind of like one and done, and then he's on to the next scene. I think this is the only time in the scriptures that he circles back. He, come, he boomerangs back to Chuck. Why would he do that? Because he's not finished teaching Chuck the Gospel. Chuck hasn't heard it yet. And maybe this is where we haven't heard it yet. Chuck was waiting to hit a target. Say the right words, get in the pool at the right time, cut through the line, get myself where I need to be. Keep all the rules, crack the code, keep moving forward. That's what he was after. How's that working out for him? Not that good. The gospel is not keep all the rules and you're good. The gospel is receive the gift and be changed. Respond to it in love. Chuck didn't say the right words at all. Remember, he completely fumbled Jesus' question to him. Chuck got lost even after the miracle. Have you gotten lost after a miracle? Have you lost your way after God has done something miraculous to you? Absolutely, we all have. And so Jesus is not done with him. Why? Because he is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to find the one. Chuck is the one sheep he's after right now. Chuck is the one person on his mind. The good news is that Jesus comes back looking for Chuck and he will come back for you and for me. And he'll come back for us at our work when we're at our most discouraged. And he'll come back for us in the infertility clinic where they're talking to you about next steps for treatment. And he'll come back for us in the oncology ward when we're having to face another round of chemo. 
And he'll come back for us that next time we don't get a text back from someone we're trying to start a relationship with. And he'll come back, and he'll come back, and he'll come back because he's not done. He was not done with Chuck. Thank God he was not done with Chuck because that means he's not done with me and he's not done with you. So no matter how you have felt this week or the week ahead, you're anticipating something, you're worried about something, the shepherd is coming. He's coming back. No matter how lost you may feel or how you feel lost for people you love, I wish they knew Jesus, I wish they'd be a part of a church, I wish, I wish, I wish, the shepherd is coming. He will find the one. Chuck starts doing it right at the end. Because what's the last verse? He goes and tells the Jews, that's the guy, Jesus. He gets it right. Doesn't matter that he got it right. Jesus is still after him, but he finally starts to step in the right path. That should give us hope. It gives me hope. He's using his story. He's using his broken body. And if you think about it, the people around him walked by him for 38 years. And if you saw somebody sitting in the same place for 38 years and they were finally healed, that would feel a little odd. You might feel a little guilt, like, oh, I didn't really do anything to help that guy. And now he's using his body, he's using his life, he's using his voice as a witness to the shepherd who came back for him. Will we, as a church, do that this week? It's super hard to talk about Jesus. It's super hard to share a word of hope in our polarized time. But let me encourage you, share out of what he has done for you. Share how you were the one sheep that he came after. Use your values. Use the lens of the things that you really love and care about to invite other people into this amazing thing that God is doing. And maybe you'll pray a prayer. It sounds something like this. Jesus, use all of me this week. Would you heal all of me? I I got something that I think I want you to heal, but there's so much more that you want to heal. You want to set me free. And God, when I think of something impossible, there's a habit that I can't break. There's a relationship that feels irreparable. I'm so frustrated by my own impotence, by my own inability to move things forward in my life. Would you transform me? So Jesus, we bring that prayer to you together. Thank you that you are the shepherd who comes back for the lost sheep, for each of us. Thank you that you are our healer. And we think we need your healing one way, but oh man, we need your healing in so many ways. Our world needs your healing, God. Just this week alone, we see so many places of turmoil and war and conflict and divisions political animosity, hatred between ethnic groups. We need your healing so bad. And if we don't see that, we are kidding ourselves. So Lord, as we unite our voices yet again in song, would you bring your healing to us so that we can then make that available to others. You can't give what you don't have. So in these moments as we worship, would you... Use these songs as ways for us to bring our places of healing where we need your healing to you. Only your Holy Spirit can do this as we respond to the gospel, so may it be so. We love you and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen.